Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy. So, we're reading what's called, uh, what come from a series of passages, kind of a sampling of passages through what are referred to as um, the cleanliness laws. And they have to deal with the dietary code of the Old Testament, as well as these cleanliness laws about bodily fluids in our bodies. And I hope to bring together some major themes from all of that. Um, I'm kind of pulling uh, passages that I think teach us the representative themes from this passage. So bear with me. Um, and, you know, if nothing else, we can all say like, yeah, we read the weird part of the Bible and maybe it had something meaningful, possibly. But we did it one time, right? If nothing else, we get Jesus points for that. Um, all right, here we go. It starts off easy. We're going to ease into it, then it gets more challenging. But we're going to start from Leviticus 11. This is the beginning of the food laws. Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel. These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel... Because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. The rock badger, sorry, if you're a big rock badger that's prominent in your diet, things are going to get complicated for you now. Because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. I don't know what a rock badger is. You're like, but you didn't do your research. Sorry, I did not research rock badger, but don't worry. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, it's unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. It goes on to give uh, rules about clean and unclean fish, clean and unclean birds, clean and unclean insects. And then that passage ends with this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's where it gets awkward. This is Leviticus 12, verse 1 and 2. Again, there's more extensive legislation. I'm trying to give you representative examples. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, and as at the time of her menstruation, so also shall she be unclean. Well, it's going to get awkwarder. Well, not quite. Wait until we get to... Chapter 15. Um, 13, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When a person uh, has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest to one of his son, or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the disease area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the disease area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin on his body, it's a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin on his body and appears no deeper than the skin, the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And one last fun little sound bite. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, speak to the people in Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body and his discharge is unclean, yes, it's referring to what you're wondering. This is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge. It is his uncleanness. All right, we're going to close on Matthew 8. Then we're going to pray. When Jesus came down from the mountain, crowds followed him and a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, 
If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider something that's foreign to us and bizarre to us, I pray that you would teach us some simple things. I pray that we would handle your word and consider it well. Father God, um, let us entertain these things, be changed by these things. We need you to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So before we start in on the outline, I want you to think about simply this phenomenon and how pervasive it is in your human experience, that it's actually something going on all the time. And what that is, is the phenomenon of thinking about in and out, whether you're in or whether you're out, whether it's um, socially, professionally, academically, morally, uh, intellectually, physically, that we're constantly thinking about who we're grouped with, who we're not grouped with, who we wish we were grouped with, who we're worried we aren't grouped with, that that is actually in some ways maybe the most common human experience, that that occupies most of our mental space most of the time. Where do we belong? Do I belong? Am I qualified to belong? In in hundreds of different spaces, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis said this in a lecture about it. He said, my main purpose in this address, he said this to students, is simply to convince you that this desire of being in is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It's one of the factors which go to make up the world as we know it. The whole pell-mell struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment, and advertisement of it is one of the permanent mainsprings of the human condition. And in a lot of ways, I don't think it's a point that's too hard to get at or to kind of connect with. Um, The most rewarding and the most frustrating experiences we have in college are when we discover that we're in or we discover that we're out. Uh, Again, in any kind of situation or circumstance. We're always viewing ourselves and others through various lenses of do I belong or not, am I acceptable or not. And these passages... Or God actually talking about, yes, there's an in and an out. That is, uh, there's acceptable or clean. So to be clean was to be acceptable uh, in worship. And there's unacceptable, there's unclean. And uh, unacceptable meant that they could not, or unclean meant that they could not come in worship. And these are symbolic ritual cleanness and uncleanness. And that's an important distinction. And what they do is they point us to deeper, truer realities of how God deals with the fact that there are things about us that make us unacceptable. And and that's troubling, but there's more of the story. So let's jump in first and just talk about what were the cleanliness laws. Just kind of a brief explanation of what they are. Um, uh, And before we even do that, two clarifications. First of all, this is not an old idea. This is not archaic or unsophisticated we have food and cleanliness laws today. Because most of us in this room feel like eating a dog or a cat or a squirrel is unclean. It's just a cultural expectation. There's nothing moral right or wrong about it. But when I say, like, would you like to have some dog? You think, that's kind of gross. I don't want to eat it. That's kind of unclean, right? So we actually already have in our mindset cultural expectations about what clean and unclean food are. They're not moral in any way. We're not saying that's immoral. Or, or moral, but we are saying like that's kind of wrong and there's kind of right classifications of food you can eat. So first of all, we have food cleanliness laws. Nothing's changed. Every culture has them. Um, we also just have cleanliness laws in general. 
Uh, our house is not a shoes-off house. People ask us when they come because we all have cleanliness laws about shoes in our houses, right? And it's a rule that doesn't declare anybody righteous or unrighteous. It's not a moral rule for most people. Um, but it is a way that every culture says clean or unclean. Uh, so here's a, a kind of a sillier one, but it actually makes a point. Picking your nose. Is there anything immoral about that? No, there is not. You should not feel judged. You pickers, it's okay. However, does it make other people view you as unclean? Yes. Right? Here's my point. Those are just cultural expectations about clean and unclean that we all relate to that are not moral statements about someone's moral standing, but they are cleanliness statements about whether or not people kind of belong or don't belong. So... Let's not be naive and think that we're really sophisticated and don't have these kind of rules. We do. Secondly, second qualification, these address ritual status and not moral status. And you heard me kind of allude to that in the first qualification. You need to know this. To be unclean is not the same thing as to be unrighteous before God. And to be clean is not the same thing as being righteous. And that's a huge argument that actually Jesus has all throughout the Gospels with people, saying that you're not holy because you obey the cleanliness laws. But they do serve as symbolic illustrations that teach us things about holiness. Um, We're going to talk more about it, but you've got to set these things in your mind. These are not conditions of moral status before God. They're conditions of ritual impurity, and those are different things. Let me... This is not a perfect example, but this is my best shot at explaining the difference between ritual impurity and kind of moral... Unfitness. Um, there are certain things that you have to do ritually to participate in a football practice at Stanford. You have to wear the appropriate clothes. That's a ritual. Now, if you show up to a Stanford practice and you're a Stanford football player and you wear all Oregon outfit, right? Oregon shirt, Oregon shorts, Oregon socks, everything. You're not fit for practice. Are you on the team? Absolutely. Are you allowed to participate in the rituals of the team? No, you're not. Because you've chosen to wear symbols that actually defy your identity in the team. Right? It's not a perfect analogy, but it's something of that, trying to explain how we actually do use rituals to help us teach us about identity. But identity is rooted in something deeper and more real, but rituals always teach us. So, it's not clear. What we're about to do might make it less clear. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to try. What are the rules? First of all, food. Animals that part the hoof are cloven-footed and chew the cud. What does that mean? What is that referring to? It's just simply saying hooved animals that eat grass, that you can eat those. So anything that's hooved and eats meat is unclean. That's what the pig is. It's something that has a hoof but eats meat. It's unclean. But also anything that eats grass but has paws, that's what's being referenced to earlier, has paws instead of hooves, is also out. So that's the rule. We'll talk about maybe why that's the rule in a second. I didn't read the verses about the fish, but here are the things that make... So the, the kind of, it talks about animals in three different spheres, on land, in the water, and in the air. And it says fish that have fins and scales are clean, and water animals that don't have fins and scales are unclean, right? So lobster, shrimp, that kind of stuff. With birds, it's birds that eat meat are unclean. Birds that don't are clean. It actually talks about insects as well, and the distinction for insects is insects that swarm in a chaotic manner are unclean. 
but insects that don't are clean. And in addition to prohibition on eating all these foods, we're going we're to weave the common thread through there, so hold on for a second. But in addition to the prohibition of eating these kinds of animals, also whenever you handle a dead animal's carcass, you're also unclean. Okay? So that's our food. Then it also talks about our bodies. Three different occasions, broad occasions, marked people as unclean. The first one is the loss of blood. So for a woman, whether through delivery or through their menstrual cycle, there's a loss of blood, and the loss of blood marks them as unclean. The second thing is the loss of semen. So for a man, nocturnal emissions or semen spilling out in any capacity makes them unclean. And then the third thing is skin disease. And there's actually an extensive list of examining skin disease, but when uh, 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 contagious skin diseases arose on people, they were marked as unclean. So those are the rules. Now here's where we're going to try to kind of weave them together and see what the common themes are. Why these rules? Uh, there have been theories down through the years that they're cultic rules, meaning that um, you know some of these clean, some of these unclean animals like pigs or camels were used in pagan worship, and God didn't want animals used in pagan worship, uh, used in Christian worship. But that's actually not the case because actually some of the clean animals are also used in pagan worship. So it's not a cultic thing. Uh, some people propose that it's a hygienic thing that certain animals uh, are unclean because they carry disease, and the clean animals don't carry disease. Again, that's just not factually true. So it's not hygienic reasons. Uh, A third proposition has been that it's symbolic, that things like pigs and camels signify pagans or Gentiles or unbelievers, and sheep signify Israelites. However, nothing supports that as well. And um, there's a book called Purity and Danger by a scholar named Mary Douglas, and every commentary I read on this text all referenced this book. And so I looked at it, and she asked a really important question, and she just says, what is the common thread through all of this? And I think that's a really helpful question. What is the common thread that, again, if you are experiencing and thinking about these things, right, that's kind of been our task for Leviticus, is what was it like to be there and experience these things? What's the common thread? And I think the first clearest common thread is this, is there's a concern for life and a revulsion for death. A concern for life and a revulsion for death. Animals that feasted on blood were unclean. Dead animal carcasses were unclean. Anything associated with death was unclean. And it extends beyond personal health laws. Uh, it extends beyond also to the personal health laws. Because blood, has, which is already, this has already been expressed earlier in Leviticus, blood is a symbol for life. And so when blood left the body, it signified and felt like, like life leaving the body. Semen is the place that life begins for the male gender. And when semen is spilled, it's life-giving fluid spilling out. That's not saying, this is why it's not saying sex is dirty. It's actually saying the beginning of life is precious to God. And so when blood and when semen are spilt, those are two bodily fluids that signify or symbolize life. And God is making a symbolic association for his people that life spilling out is no good. And skin disease falls right in there, right? It's when the body is not functioning properly. It's the body broken, experiencing life diminished, death creeping in, less than life, dysfunction. And when you put all these rules together and ask, what is the common thread, the clearest common thread that God is trying to tell his people is that God hates anything that threatens life, anything that diminishes life, anything associated with death. 
you would think God is obviously all about life and life to the fullest. And contemplating the cleanliness laws may be one of the most important things we do because it shows a God refusing to compromise with anything that breaks life. So what are the... I think there's more than that there. A second reason, a second common thread um, that really applies to the animal laws but also applies to the stuff that happens... You, you might or might not be familiar. I didn't read these, but... Um, There are these rules about not mixing crops in a field, not planting two different things in the same field. There are these rules about not making clothes with two different fabrics, mixing blends. And so when you begin to look at the animal laws and then you look at those laws about blending, um, the way to think about it is I think they would pick up that God has a concern for things to be the way they were intended. Now let me explain that for a second. Every culture has a sense of orderliness, of like, oh, that the way things are supposed to be. And, and kind of a sense of, and there are way things shouldn't be. And again, not, our sense of order is not always moral, right? Sometimes it's like pretty subjective, just a social construct, right? And so an example of that with regard to animals is this. We actually have a sense now, too. There are certain animals most of us would look at, and we look at the animal, and we're like, that's not how that animal is supposed to look. Here's my example. A hairless cat. Have you seen one? They're terrifying looking. <laughs> and here's what you viscerally feel. This is important to just think about the feeling of it. When you see a hairless cat, you're like, that's not how a cat's supposed to be. It's not a moral statement about the cat. It's just a feeling. That's not how a cat's supposed to be. Okay, that's a culturally conditioned response. It's okay. We're recognizing that. And this first, or well, 3,000 years ago, agrarian pastoralist culture, the way Douglas talks about it, is that they have a sense of what the normal four-legged herd creatures, how they should be. They're hooved and they eat grass. They're hooved and they eat grass. So a herd animal that's hooved and eat blood, they're like, that's not how a herd animal is supposed to act. It would be their hairless cat, right? Uh, so something that ate grass um, but, was ho- but was hooved, or sorry, something that was hooved and ate meat or something that ate grass but had paws. They're like, that's weird. That doesn't conform to the normal classification animals are supposed to fall in. So this is their visceral response to like, these certain animals that he's talking about, they just don't conform to the way we normally expect animals of their class to conform. Look at the fish, right? They see animals in their mind, water animals, they're like scales and fins. That's it, Right? So this idea of like, oh, there are animals in the sea that don't have scales and fins, that's not normal. Um, by the end of uh, chapter 11, we read those verses. This is the end of his holiness code on, or cleanliness code uh, on food. And he said, for I am the Lord your God. This is how he closes it. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And so what we, this is the closest thing we get to an explanation about the food laws And right here, he connects it with this thing called holiness. But what we also know from the New Testament is Jesus doesn't believe you're made righteous by observing the food laws. So what is holiness? And this is my best proposal at it, trying to represent scholarship in this field that I think is sound and makes sense of all of Scripture. Holiness is being all in on one thing. These animal laws are demonstrating symbolically the principle of being just one thing. 
And when animals don't conform to their expected class of animals, their classifications, God is saying, see that? See how you feel when you're like, that animal is not behaving or doesn't act the way animals of its class are supposed to act. He's saying that feeling, that's how I feel about holiness. That's a metaphor to teach us about holiness, what holiness is. Being all that you were intended to be with no compromises. No divided identity. Where you don't know who you are because you're divided between trying to forge so many identities in so many different arenas. Again, this is what I think makes sense of the mixed crops uh, rule and the, and the polyblend shirt rule where God's saying, I want things to be what they were supposed to be, to be all one thing. And he always constantly connects that to this idea of holiness. So I think that's why the rules existed in their culture. They taught that God cares about life and that God cares about holiness. Holiness being being all one thing, the thing you were supposed to be. So what do they mean for us? Um, and the first one is, we'll talk about that idea of holiness a little bit more, that God has a desire for holiness for you and for his people. And the way one of my friends described holiness is holiness is wholeheartedness. Having one full heart that is in and for and defined by one thing. You know, that's what we all want. That's what we look for at Stanford all the time, right? The singular driving passion. The singular driving passion that actually integrates and gives purpose to all the rest of life. It's what we're searching for. It's the keystone, the anchor. Holiness is being all in on one thing, the right and true thing, your identity as God's. Holiness is not simply about being whole. It's about being holy to God. And God's people were marked by rituals that remind them of being holy to God, meaning that all of you is all God's. And, and even in the, the body laws, right, there's something really intimate about them. They get really personal and really private. And it feels intrusive. Like God is saying, the most private matters in your life. That's what I'm talking about when I say holiness. Nothing is off limits. He's saying holiness means all of you belongs to me, even the things that are the most private matters God speaks to. And what that means is God is not interested or after one bucket in your life. Right? You're to shore up your religious self. That belongs to God. To be His means that you understand it's all His. Holiness is actually when we stop picking and choosing which parts of our lives to give up to God and others that we're going to hold back from Him. Because that's not how you're intended to live. We are intended to be wholehearted, your whole heart consumed with one thing, not compartmentalized. You're intended, God is demonstrating the holistic nature of what it means to be human. And when God is your whole heart, it doesn't mean that you're deprived from the other parts of your life. Rather, all the other parts of your life are brought into proper order and relation and proportion. All the other parts of your life will begin to make sense. Like relationships, like work, like sex, like friends. All of you is intended to be loved by Him, resting in Him, lived in light of His love, living for Him and in His presence. That's the essence of love. Love doesn't have compartments. And the love that you were made to experience breaks down all the walled areas of our life. And we wilt as long as we keep trying to live compartmentalized. But holiness is the biblical word, not for simply insisting on hard rules, though sometimes it involves that, it's a much bigger principle than that. It's wholeheartedness to the Lord. 
So these things teach us that God cares a lot about holiness, this idea of holiness. The second thing, also from those first points, is it keeps us in touch with the sacredness of all of life. Um, When you encounter death, and we all probably already have, what you feel like is you feel like death is depriving you of the most human and the most natural desire, which is more of someone you care about. Right? This is the way my friend kind of talked about it when he's done funerals in the past, is what you feel like is you feel like, I wanted more of them. That is right. That's good. Never make peace with that emotion. Don't try to make it go away. And what's happening in these codes is you're seeing God symbolize an intense antipathy for anything that diminishes life. And it extends far beyond simply physical death, but anything that diminishes any part of life, illness, pain, death, but also sin diminishes life, right? A relationship severed by lies or abuse diminishes life. A vocation that leads to the exploitation of the weak is diminishing life in this world. Drama and selfishness that wounds people diminishes life in this world. Actions that use people, all sin diminishes life. Life is more than simply physical, right? And what Leviticus is doing is it's tuning us back into reality. And here's the thing is, reality is difficult. Because in what we want to do and what I want to do is water it down, mitigate it, medicate it, run from it, desensitize ourselves because reality is overwhelming. What happened in Florida this past week is overwhelming. I don't want to feel about it. We don't want to feel about it because the feelings are too big. Because it's scary to feel about it. The destructive nature of the pornography industry, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to feel about it because it's killing people. The proximity of the Me Too movement to what's going on on campuses on the weekend, we don't want to feel, I don't want to feel that. It's too overwhelming. Right? The terminal illness of a loved one is overwhelming. We will use anything to not feel the sadness of reality. Because feeling reality is overwhelming. And Leviticus is God using little symbols to call His people and us back into dealing with reality as it comes to us. And this is a good thing. Because when we finally begin to be confronted with the trauma of a reality that's charged with so much potential for beauty, but corrupted by so much sorrow, and sorrow that seems to win by virtue of the fact that death is coming for us all, when you begin to be, become someone who's no longer searching for palliative care until you die, which is what we're doing most of the time, but rather someone who recognizes that the only good God is one who will come into our suffering and comes and conquers the most real reality that everybody in this room will encounter, which is death itself. Y'all, y'all busyness and drunkenness and Netflix are what we use to avoid reality. And Leviticus is calling us back to deal with it. And as you grow into a person that deals with reality as it really is, here's what happens. You become human again. And you grieve death and you grieve anything that diminishes what was supposed to be beautiful. And the, the practice of constantly being aware of our proximity to death signals to us that God is a God who is relentlessly jealous of life. And that being the case, they should and we should expect him to do something about it. And he did. 
the wages of sin of death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And if you're united to him by faith in his death, and then in that death, he dies to pay our wages, and you are united to him in his resurrection. The ultimate enemy is death, and Christ came to bring life where sin had brought death. These rules train them to look for and identify the one who conquers sin and death by forcing them to always deal with the fact that death is the realest reality everyone engages in. None of us wants to deal with that. And we'll try everything we can to avoid feeling that. This is good news to become aware of death. So, it tells us God cares about holiness. It tells us, uh, it, it trains us to deal with reality as it really is. Uh, the other thing is that these rules would do and do for us is when you read through them, you realize it teaches that we have a universal need for cleansing. That everyone eventually becomes unclean. That everyone eventually becomes unfit for God's presence. Everyone ceremonially or ritually becomes unfit for the symbolic place of God's presence, the tabernacle, when they tried to observe these laws. When Jesus comes on the scene of Mark, he and his followers are encountering people who are getting upset that Jesus and his followers are not washing their hands before they eat. And they're saying, oh, you're, you're unclean. And he says, don't you know that there's nothing outside of you that actually defiles you in God's presence? And he's talking about the food laws. Rather, it's what comes out of us, not that what goes in us that defiles us. And actually, the text of Mark says, he was declaring all foods clean at that moment. And he says, it's what comes out of a person from within the heart of man, evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come on from in here. And they're in all of us, and that's what defiles us. And he's calling people in Leviticus to look through the signs to the reality they're pointing us toward. That's what you do with signs. You look through them towards the reality to which they point. And this clean, unclean ritual distinction was pointing to sin. The way an old RF campus minister said it is, it's teaching us that sin does to the body, or sin does to the soul what dirt, disease, and decay do to the body. Sin alienates and isolates us. It's our sin that breaks our relationships. Disease introduces physical distance from people. In Leviticus, sin introduces relational distance. Dirt and infection break down our bodies. Sin breaks down our souls. Dirt and infection disfigure the body. Sin disfigures our souls. It's what's in us that separates and degrades and breaks down our humanity. And these rules are in place to say, don't you see, no one escapes. We all are unclean. Everyone needs cleansing. And Leviticus is using signs and symbols and metaphors to teach us about deeper reality, right? Leviticus is all about training us for reality. And within each of these sections, I didn't read all the verses, there are prescriptions for cleansing. There are means by which people are made clean again. And the point being, in the call to holiness and our failure, the concern for life and diminishing life that we experience and the fact that we contribute to the diminishing of life, the need for cleansing, the need to be acceptable and accepted, the point being, God makes a way. God always makes a way where we could not. Jesus takes on our uncleanness. Jesus is cast out 
so we wouldn't be. In all these codes, actually, when you come into contact with someone that has been unclean, the uncleanness gets on you. The brokenness spreads. Uncleanness always wins because that's how sin works. When your roommate excludes you, you get angry. One sin begets another sin. The only thing that can stop that process and, in fact, reverse that process is forgiveness, which is what Jesus brings. He creates an uproar when they thought they knew about how death and uncleanness went out in the world. It's, it, he completely subverts their understanding. Jesus comes along and something different happens. Instead of people touching Him and sin and brokenness going out in the world, people touch Him and healing goes out in the world. It actually works back on Him. He touches people and they're made clean. Jesus makes them Jesus makes you acceptable. And the manner in which he does it, the way my pastor in South Carolina, I say this all the time, is the only way something dirty gets clean is if something clean gets dirty. That's the grace of Jesus. This is how Jesus reverses the curse of sin and death. Everything else says, if you can act better, if you can clean yourself, if you can brush it off, if you can get it away, then maybe you have a chance at hope if you're good enough. But Christianity says, because Jesus was better for you, you do have hope. You are in. Your uncleanness is taken away. Everything else says hide or cover or compensate your uncleanness for your uncleanness or your unacceptability or you'll be cast out. Christianity says, because Jesus was cast out in your place, you're received. These texts are saying death and uncleanness and illness are cast out. God does not abide these things. He's longed for these things to be gone in His world. God and the world, all of us, crave a place in which sin and death are no more. So what they did in these towns is they ritually sent lepers out of the town. They sent the unclean out, reminding everyone that brokenness breaks things. But this was not to hurt people. This was to teach us and to teach them not that God does not like lepers, but rather that God loves lepers so dearly that He becomes one so that they could be made clean. He came to take our sin sickness on Himself. He came and He was cast out in our place. In the ministry of Jesus, the way one friend said it is, in the ministry of Jesus, the high priest, the one who is right with God, who has no uncleanness, the one who is right with God, the high priest, is treated like a leper so that the leper can be treated like one who is right with God. We are clean because Jesus took away our uncleanness. You are welcomed back in because He took on and took away all that should have cast us out. The reason that we no longer observe the cleanliness laws today is because the reality has come that these signs were pointing to. And so we don't need the metaphors and the rituals to teach us about being unclean before God. Paul in Galatians calls these things teachers. And he says that when the, te- the thing about which these teachers and guardians were pointing has come, you don't need them anymore because the reality has come in the person of Jesus. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn. The veil was the symbolic distance and division between God and man. But Jesus has made a way because he carried off sin and he carried off death. And so it's to Jesus we look now. This is good news. These are weird texts of the Bible. 
but they are about how Jesus is making all things new. Let's pray.